0: Every week, journalists at the University of Florida's College of Journalism and Communications report important stories for the people of North Central Florida and beyond.
1: This year's election pits incumbent Republican Senator Marco Rubio against 10th Congressional
2: District Democrat Representative Val Demings. So who would be most impacted if Amendment 1 was to pass in the upcoming general election?
3: So now, can you talk briefly about what Amendment 2 stands to do for the Constitutional Revision Commission?
1: Do you think that the burden for affordable housing is going to sort of fall on local governments?
0: This is The Rewind from WUFT News. I'm your host today, Ezra Sheffield. I'll take you through the strongest reporting coming out of the college and a discussion with the people most familiar with these stories. There is a little over two weeks until the November general election, and it is shaping up to be an important one. Governor, Attorney General, Chief Financial Officer, as well as a handful of state and U.S. Senator and representative seats are up for vote. Also on the general ballot are three constitutional amendments that could help some struggling Floridians with tax breaks, but also could have implications for the state's tax revenue. This week, the Rewind team went out to learn more about these three amendments and how they will impact Floridians now and for the future. First, producer Matthew Bell gives us an overview of what's in store for this election.
1: The November 8th election is fast approaching voters in Florida. This year's election pits incumbent Republican Senator Marco Rubio against 10th Congressional District Democrat Representative Val Dimmings. Rubio and Dimming squared off in their first and only debate on Tuesday, October 18th at the Lake Worth campus of Palm Beach State College. In the month leading up to the debate, USA Today reports that Rubio held a four-point margin over his challenger. During the debate, the two candidates sparred over a myriad of topics. On the topic of inflation, Rubio says he thinks the United States should up its oil production instead of reaching out to other countries. We've got to begin to produce American oil again. Why are we, why are we begging Saudi Arabia for oil? Why are we begging Venezuela and Iran for oil? We're producing a million barrels a day less on oil than we used to do just a couple years ago. We have the, instead we are depleting our reserves. Our, our, our oil reserves do not exist to win midterms. They exist to help this country in an emergency or in the midst of a storm. Dimmings, in response, attacked Rubio's passing of the CARES Act in the PPP program.
4: No one planned the pandem- pandemic. But our response to it is everything. Individuals were hurting, families were hurting, businesses were hurting. We passed the CARES Act, which the senator supported. There were some problems in the CARES Act with the Paycheck Protection Program that you love to take credit for.
1: Also discussed during the debate was abortion. During his allotted time, Rubio stated he was pro-life, though he did sign Senator Lindsey Graham's four-month ban on abortion with no exceptions. Rubio then called Deming's stance extremist, stating Dimming's supported taxpayer-funded abortion up until the moment of birth. Dimming's countered, saying she thinks the decision is between the mother, her family, the doctor, and her faith, not politicians such as Rubio. A final point of contention on the debate was whether each candidate would support the outcome of the election. After some jeering from the crowd, Rubio admitted he would support results regardless of the outcome. The way it's supposed to Let me work. just get you on record here that you will support the results of the 2022 election. We have great laws in Florida. Absolutely. Well, will you? Sure, because I'm going right, to win. That's so done. I look forward to supporting that. But, but We're moving on. But, but yes, no but. matter what the outcome is, I'll support it because Florida has good laws. Also on the ballot this election cycle in Florida are three amendments. The first of these amendments concerns climate change in assisting property owners who elevate all or parts of their homes. Improvements would not be considered in determining assessed values if approved by voters. The second amendment on ballots this cycle has to do with the Constitution Revision Commission, created in 1968. Commission members are appointed by legislative leaders, the Supreme Court Chief Justice, the Governor, and the Attorney General. The Commission has been somewhat controversial in recent years, accused of creating ballots that bundle ballot proposals that tend to have no relation. An example of this bundling includes a proposal that lumped together a proposed ban on indoor vaping and offshore drilling. Ballot measures may be proposed by the legislature but some argue that the elimination of the commission may make it harder for citizens to propose ballot measures they want to see in future elections. The final amendment deals with increasing the homestead exemption for firefighters, correctional officers, emergency medical technicians, paramedics, child welfare service professionals, law enforcement officers, those in the Florida National Guard, and active duty military members. As of now, homeowners can qualify for homestead exemptions on the first $25,000 of appraised property value. Under the ballot, Homeowners in the list professions would be allowed to receive an additional $50,000 exemption, applying to property valued between $100,000 and
0: $150,000. Following Hurricane Ian's devastation, Amendment 1's tax breaks for stormproofing might look attractive to many Floridians. Producer Nathaniel Wilson spoke with Mike Twitty, the Pinellas County property appraiser, about Amendment 1 and the effects it could have on homeowners and Florida's tax revenue.
5: What I'd like to say clear on this is, you know, while Amendment 1, the language reads that it basically any flood related improvements would be disregarded in property assessments. If you look at the implementing bill, which puts the guardrails on the amendment and really is where you have to dig into the weeds to see how it actually gets applied and, and used. And that implementing bill really puts some guardrails and it's really just about elevation of residential property so what it's trying to do is incentivize homeowners to get out of harm's way by investing private capital rather than having to rely on bailouts and insurance payments and things after a calamity happens so we use the language that already existed in in florida statute related to calamities which allows a property owner that's substantially damaged by by a catastrophic event to rebuild up to 110% of their total square footage and not get reassessed so they don't get treated as new construction. That's already in current law. What we did is we looked at it and said, let's take a proactive approach. You know, we, we've got a lot of coastal properties, and it's not just the properties on the water. For example, in my home county of Pinellas, 70% of our properties in the special flood hazard area are non-waterfront properties and a lot of them are moderately valued. So it's really about, you know, preventing equity erosion in those properties, getting them out of harm's way, and making the, the community more resilient going forward, which will preserve the tax base actually over time.
2: So who would be most impacted if Amendment one was to pass in the upcoming general election?
5: Well, under the way it's written right now, you know, while they're showing a fairly minor
2: Fiscal impact is our estimate
5: of about $25 statewide, which is not a giant fiscal on something like this when you bring it down to county levels, especially with the taxable value growth we've had here over the last decade. In my county alone, we we averaged 13% countywide of of taxable value growth, and we had jurisdictions as high as 16% large value growth around the state as a result of what's going on with our real estate market. The post-pandemic, so while they did put a fiscal amount on it, I think it's very, very difficult to even attempt to measure because there's all sorts of of other underlying forces at play, and you could really make the argument that it's actually going to increase the amount of tax revenue collected when you actually bring in a little bit of a timeline, because when these properties are improved, it's going to increase their value and that value is ultimately going to be recaptured by jurisdictions when these properties change hands. And if you can incentivize that more of these homes get up out of harm's way, you're going to help your community rating system under the National Flood Insurance Program, which could essentially bring down flood premiums for all homeowners in that area. So there's a lot of moving parts to it that make it very difficult to put, you know, an impact on it either pro or con
2: who opposes the amendment
5: the only one i've really seen are some of the opinion pieces in some of the papers and again i think they looked at it as very broad that several of them have said that they think it need they think it's a good in concept but they thought it needed to be narrowed well it actually is narrowed it's narrowed via the implementing bill so why you can, the constitutional amendment can't really be narrowed if you if you look in the constitution there are already um things that have passed related to wind improvements and stuff for solar for you know any renewable energy devices those are already ignored in assessed value increases so this is just bringing flood into that equation now Some people think this applies to seawalls and everything else that could possibly be a flood improvement. That is not the case. Right now, it is just the elevation situation. It would require the legislature, after the passage of Amendment 1, to then go back and file additional bills that would become laws that would change how that could be implemented.
2: Do you think that in the aftermath of Hurricane Ian, more Floridians are looking to be proactive when it comes to preparing their homes for natural disasters and rising sea levels?
5: I think so. It, it, I mean, obviously that was a big wake up call, you know, not only for those that live there, but all of us that are within the state of Florida that, you know, in, in my case in Pinellas, we were in the bullseye and I was in the emergency operations center bearing down, getting ready for what I feared was going to be our worst case scenario. And, and you know, fortunately for us, it turned. Unfortunately for them, you know, they they bore the brunt of it. So it just reinforces the fact that we've got to become more proactive. And that's all I was trying to do with you know, bringing this concept to the legislature was to try and get people thinking that way and start to get our community more resilient and move down that path. And then that requires less dollars of investment from, from the government side. So even if they lose a few dollars, this is a proactive mitigation event that they're not actually having to spend active dollars on.
2: And do you think that Amendment 1 will pass in the general election?
5: I think so. I haven't found anybody that I've asked about it and given them the scenario that has thought it was a bad idea. Everyone's thought it made a whole lot of sense, particularly in Florida. And then since the end, they really think it's a really good idea.
2: And what are some other issues that voters should be on the lookout for?
5: There is an additional ad valorem related amendment, which is Amendment 3. So that one obviously has a much bigger kind of fiscal impact on it. That would be an additional $50,000 of homestead exemption for critical public service workers. That one, you know, people need to decide whether they want to support that or not. You know, that that can create a shift of burden. You know, obviously it, it would give a larger benefit to those that work within those qualified occupations. You know, police, firefighters, National Guard, armed forces, K through 12 school teachers and and many others that are that are named in the bill. But that's for each property owner to and voter to decide going forward if they think that makes sense. I I don't want to I don't want to influence anyone on that right now.
0: That was producer Nathaniel Wilson speaking with Pinellas County Property Appraiser Mike Twitty about the impact Amendment 1 could have on Florida homeowners and state tax revenue. Florida Amendment 2 stands to abolish the state's Constitutional Revision Commission, or CRC. It sparked controversy during the 2018 election cycle when commissioners bundled multiple issues into one, and seven of the eight amendments passed were involved in lawsuits alleging misleading language. Producer Julia Cooper spoke with former director of the Leroy Collins Institute at Florida State University, Carol Weisert. Weisert formed a coalition that created an education campaign about the CRC before it convened in 2017 for the third time since its creation.
4: Revision Commission is made up of 37 members. It's, it's embedded in our own state constitution. So when we wrote the constitution in 68, we put in this provision for this Constitution Revision Commission. It meets every 20 years and the members are chosen by the governor. The governor has the most, uh, most uh, choices and then the leadership of the House and the Senate and then they, um, the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court has three appointees, and then the Attorney General is always a member. So we've had three since the, the Constitution in 1968, three Constitution Revision Commissions. The most recent one was the 2017-2018 one. It's, a, it's, it's unique to Florida in the sense that it puts in place this Constitution Revision Commission that has The power to deal with any issue um, doesn't have to be tied to the budget or anything. It's any issue that they want. And the issues when they decide that they want to want this in the Constitution, it goes directly to the ballot and the citizens vote on it. So it's a very strong power um, of the citizens, but the idea when they put it in was that it, along with the initiative process, is a way that the citizens of Florida can, can directly speak to issues that they want to have in the Constitution. So that's what's really cool about it and the fact that it's every 20 years. And it's every 20 years in part because Thomas Jefferson said that every generation should have a chance to rewrite their constitution. So it's directly Je- Jeffersonian. Um, we've had three of them. They have been, they have been relatively successful. Um, the things they put into the constitution include a, a strong provision about education, include public financing. Just a whole variety of important things have come through. And importantly, it's a way, again, that the legislature it doesn't have to it doesn't have to vote on it. So it allows the, the citizens to, if you will, directly to, to get their, these issues um, on the ballot without dealing with the legislature. So
3: now can you talk briefly about what Amendment 2 stands to do for the Constitutional
4: Revision Commission? Yeah, it wants to get rid of it. <laughs> so Amendment Two would abolish the, the CRC. Now, you might your your viewers might be saying, "Well, why should we want to do that? Why should we want to take away a right that the citizens have to to uh, to?" Uh, write their own constitution like Thomas Jefferson suggested um, and the reason is the legislature doesn't like it because they don't like to be going around and if you you notice the last few years the legislature has been trying to constrain or restrain the um, the um, uh, the initiative process, and this is part of that effort because they don't like things that they can't control, and they can't control this. The proximate reason is that they don't don't like the CRC. Is that the last one um, used put together in one in one amendment several issues like they would put together two issues or three issues. It was called bundling. Um, for example, we we the voters chose um, to vote on an amendment that um, that did away with go- offshore drilling but also in that same amendment it did away with vaping inside um, and so an indoor vaping kind of uh, thing so people said why are these why are these two things together um, and so there was a there was a concern that maybe it was confusing to voters but you know what the voters voted on all seven there were seven measures and they voted yes by 60 percent or higher on all seven measures so I don't know if they were so confused about it because they voted in favor of it. You'd think if they were confused, they would have voted against it so um so the, the, that's the argument though is that basically there are no rules right I mean the Constitution doesn't say that there there should be a single issue for this so um, but but I you know I think if that's the issue why don't we change that and why don't we have a constitutional amendment that says let's just have no bundling in the CRC so you keep the CRC but you don't um, but you don't um, d- but you deal with this issue of maybe, they're trying to put too many in there. And they, they, the reason why they did it was because they had a whole lot of issues that they wanted to put on there, but they didn't want to make 15 uh, constitutional uh, amendments, so they put them together. So that was the rationale. It wasn't like it was nefarious or something. Like that. They were just trying to sort of um, get all their ideas, and, uh, and they did it in a pretty awkward way.
3: What would the process of limiting the power of the CRC look like, and how long might it take?
4: Well, it's a good question. Um, there, there's some issue, you know, it, it, that, that it could be by. Uh, by statute. You mean if they if we revise the CRC? It could be by statute. Uh, they could say, the legislature could say we would like the CRC to, to only deal with one issue. It could be you could have a constitutional amendment to do that. There are a couple of other things I would change as well if I were doing it right now. In the last one, there were a number of sitting elected officials and former elected officials on there. I would make it so let's have it citizens. It's a citizens uh, commission. Um, but that, again, could be dealt with pretty easily. Um, I would make it so that the chair was selected by the commission itself, so that you had a commit chair that was really supported by the commission so there's some other there's some little things I would do to make it better um but gee whiz, why not make it better why why get away? Why do away with it?
3: Something that has come up as I've spoken with people who are you know pro abolishing the c r c is that the people that do sit on the committee are Tallahassee insiders, people with a lot of money. What do you say? to the criticism that it isn't necessarily the will of the people but the will of those in power or close to power.
4: Right, right. Well, you know, I think that you're you're dealing with an appointment process. I mean, I think you say the same argument when you're talking about judges, when you're talking judges who are appointed on a temporary basis, when you're talking about commissions that the governor feels and the legislature feels. It's a sad truth that, you know, a postman from Franklin County is is probably not going to be named to um, the commission. but there were there was a, a wide variety of people on the commission, and the other thing they did that I think that it doesn't get recognized is that they held hearings all across the state um, to talk to citizens about what they thought should be put into the constitution. And I think there were about six or seven of them, and I watched them um, on TV because uh, I really it made me feel good um, because you had people you know in honest to goodness people in you know um, uh, do just come off from work you know they work clothes on, there were overalls on, they were very nervous uh, to stand up and talk before these, you know, before this, uh, these three dozen people. And but they did it, you know, and they talked about, I really think this should be in the Florida Constitution. Um, so no, they weren't on the, con- they weren't on the Constitution Vision Commission, but they had an opportunity to talk to them. And I, I and they did. And it, it just made me feel good. And they had these hearings all over the state from West, West Florida, all the way down to Miami. Um, and so people did have a way to do it. They had a process where people could nominate uh, constitution, they could suggest their own constitutional amendments, and, and they, they looked at it and had, took it seriously. So I don't think the argument that just your Tallahassee, Tallahassee insiders is unique to the CRC, and we deal with the legislature certainly aren't representative of the whole state. Um, but I think the fact that they did try to reach out and the fact that there was this effort, and there was this mechanism that people could use, um, I, I think it, makes, it, it, it deals with that issue a little.
3: What do you believe the overall effect on the way the Florida politics works would be if Amendment 2 does end up passing and it abolishes the CRC?
4: Well, we just lose one other way for citizens to directly impact policy. And I think that's a terrible trend. We should be looking at ways for citizens to get more involved rather than to take away. So this, is a, this is an effort to take away a citizen's rights in Florida. That's just what it is. Um, if, it, if it goes away, the truth of the matter is that most people wouldn't notice it, right? I mean, because most people don't know about it. We've done, we did some survey work at the Collins Institute about this. And people didn't recognize the CRC. But when we ask them, what do you think of a commission that you has that citizen members that can put things directly on the ballot, people liked the idea. They really like the idea, even though they're not going to pass a civics quiz on on the CRC. So I think it would would be a really bad trend in Florida for us to start taking away the rights that are in the Constitution for us to directly uh, impact the way we are governed in our state.
0: That was producer Julia Cooper speaking with FSU professor and former director of the Leroy Collins Institute, Carol Weisert, about what the CRC does and what it would mean if it were abolished. Amendment 3 on the ballot looks to help give tax breaks to some of the most important workers in our community, like first responders, teachers, correctional officers, and child welfare services professionals, among others. Legislators in favor of Amendment 3 touted it as a lifeline to Floridians struggling in a volatile housing market, but those against it say the measure wouldn't do enough. Producer Jack Prater spoke with Sheila Payne, the housing coordinator for the Alachua County Labor Coalition, about who the amendment leaves out.
6: If you're a schoolteacher, it would be hard for you to buy a home, right? If you only had that income. So you can't even get a housing... Exemption because you don't have your own home. So, what they need to do, they could have used that money to help first responders to buy a home. A, there's not enough housing. Now, with so much of it destroyed in Southwest Florida, you know, they say there's going to be a bunch of climate migrants here. I mean, the The city and county commissioners have been anticipating that for a while. We don't have enough housing. We're down 30,000 units and much less affordable housing. I mean, there's people who come in as assistant professors who can't find a house to try to buy. Yeah, this does nothing to help build housing. They need to leave the housing funds alone, they need to be putting money into housing, they need to fix the, if they fix the insurance crisis right now, it would help people more than getting, I think it's 25,000 I saw on my ballot that they're saying would be an extra homestead exemption. Yeah, so that's, that's not like you're getting 25,000, you're able to take that off the value so it might it might be, you know, $100 a year. So yeah, it it just sounds good and everyone's going to vote yes because they all love their firefighters and school teachers and so do I. But it's not really going to help them if they can't afford to buy a house.
1: So do you remember when this was going through the legislature, what the initial reaction to it was for yourself?
6: Just a political giveaway. I mean, DeSantis, like, films himself when he's at press conferences. He likes to surround himself with police officers or firefighters. Why doesn't he pay the teachers more? You know, he upped the rate of pay for first-time teachers, and he's bringing military in to help take those jobs. But yet people, experienced teachers who have been here 20 years, their pay didn't go up. Some of them are now making the same as entering teachers. They're not resentful about that, but they would like for somebody, they would like to be able for their pay to be raised also so they could afford to support their families. All the teachers I know work either a second job or work all summer at another job. So it's just a ploy.
1: Do you think that the burden for affordable housing is gonna sort of fall on local governments?
6: Well, yeah, and I think it should. Uh, The Labor Coalition, we've been working on this issue. I've been involved with it for almost 15 years. And after going to all the meetings, we realized they are not going to build any affordable housing. We, the Labor Coalition, we support inclusionary housing. For 20 years, we've been talking about when all these big high-rises were being built, For students, then it's the time that 10% of it has to be left aside for affordable. Well, people are like, the students aren't going to want to live with families, you know? They don't want the families don't want to live with students. So it's really just been a big giveaway. The prime real estate is has been developed, is continuing to be developed, and then. Developers can say, we're not putting affordable in to our development. We'll just leave it vacant. It's ridiculous. I I think there's been a lot of missed opportunities because there is money. Other communities get big federal grants to build affordable housing.
1: Before I let you go, was there anything else sort of related to the amendment that you wanted to add?
6: I know it's going to sound harsh I said that. I I just feel like like I get the exemption. I'm homesteaded. I live, I own my home. So I guess I am going to come off as sour about it. But I feel like those three professions, police officers, teachers, and firefighters, that money should have been given to them as a raise and let them decide. Because a lot of them are not homeowners so yeah that money should go to pay them a higher wage and be reoccurring instead of a bonus some people got a thousand dollar bonus i would rather that money have gone to raise their wages than for them to get an exemption on a home that they may or may not own what about first-time home buyers that doesn't help them you know give it Give them the money as a down, give them 25000 50000 as a down payment on a house, because a lot of them can't afford houses.
0: That was producer Jack Prater speaking with the housing coordinator for the Alachua County Labor Coalition about gaps in Amendment 3. That's all for this episode. For more information about each amendment, as well as to learn more about the other races on the ballot, visit wuft.org. The Rewind from WUFT News is produced by Matthew Bell, Julia Cooper, Jack Prater, Ezra Sheffield, and Nathaniel Wilson. Our executive producer is Ryan Vasquez. WUFT News is operated out of the College of Journalism and Communications at the University of Florida. Remember to follow us at WUFT News on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for the latest stories. Thank you for listening. I'm Ezra Sheffield. See you next week.